Amen. All right, Psalm chapter 15, if you'll turn there with me in your Bibles as we continue our journey through the book of Psalms together. Psalm 15, we get another Psalm of David, and you'll notice Psalm 15 is quite a contrast from Psalm 14. Psalm 14 described the godless man. If you remember in Psalm 14, it was the psalm where we get that statement we've heard of so many times before, perhaps, that the fool has said in his heart that there is no God, and how as God looks down upon humanity, wishing that there were those who were seeking God, instead he looks down from heaven upon the children of men, and he sees that all have turned aside and together become corrupt. And he talks about just the depravity of humanity and and the sadness of those who suppress the truth of God and choose to believe the lie instead and really just ignore the existence of God and the authority of God and really want nothing to do with God. And that's the idea there is that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. It's literally the fool says in his heart, no God. In other words, no to God, Uh, that he just chooses that he does not want to believe that God exists and he does not want to accept God's authority or God's presence in his life or God's involvement in his life. (coughs) Excuse me. As we come to Psalm 15 now, it's kind of almost as if set next to it in a parallel form. The very next Psalm is like a contrast because Psalm 15 now describes the man, the woman who is interested in God and who desires to experience God and to be in God's presence, the exact opposite it seems in fact you notice david here begins with a question in psalm 15 verse 1 he says lord again that's the 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 yhvh the covenant name of god jehovah god the covenant keeping god he says who may abide that is remain or be uh, continually dwelling in your tabernacle. Now, when he talks about the Lord's tabernacle, the word tabernacle refers to just a a temporary or tent-like dwelling place. So it's very likely that David in his mind is thinking about uh, the place of the presence of the Lord. If you remember in the wilderness wanderings, God was moving among the people and they would set up and tear down the tabernacle, the tent-like structure. And there in the rear part of that tent in the what was called the Holy of Holies, God would manifest his presence among the people. So the tabernacle was a representation to the people of the place of God's presence. So it just is a, a representation of the presence of God, where the worship of God would take place, where his people would meet together with God to gather and to be with him. He says as well, verse one, and who may dwell in your holy hill. And there probably a reference, Mount Zion, Mount Moriah, probably a reference there more to the ultimate permanent dwelling place. Remember where the physical structure, the temple itself, which Solomon built would ultimately be, which was the exact same thing only in a permanent form. That place where God's presence was manifest among his people, where his people would gather together. So David here is basically asking this question, Lord, who is it that can fellowship with you? Who is it that can be in your company? In other words, almost as if he's saying, God, what kind of people do you like to spend time with? That's almost kind of the idea here. He's saying, God, uh, you know, who is it that can live in your presence? Who can you tolerate in your presence? Or who do you like to spend time with? You know, and it's interesting because a lot of times uh, we think about when we go to the house of the Lord, the tabernacle, the temple, the house of God, we think a lot of times that it's really just about us 
and our experience and us being able to experience God ministering to us and the ministry of the spirit, and to a degree it is, but we should always keep conscious that the reality is that the guest of honor in the house of God is God himself, and that Jesus is the the head of the church, and so uh, our ultimate desire when we come to the Lord's house, even in this day as Christians, even as in that day in Israel's time, is that we should remember that the the father of the household is, is God himself. It's his house, And so it's his presence that should be honored first and foremost because he's the Lord over the house. And it's Jesus who's the guest of honor and the king within the house. And so when we come, uh, we want things to be pleasing to him first and foremost. We're in his presence. And as we come and we're amongst his presence within his house and worshiping and fellowshipping, what we want to know is, Lord, uh, who can be a guest in your house? Who visits you and and who spends time with you and and who do you want to be among and what makes you feel comfortable? What kind of people do you want to be together with? What pleases you? And it's almost as if David's asking this question to which then verses two to five, he answers that question. These are the kind of people, in essence, David's saying, by the leading of the Holy Spirit. So again, it's not ultimately David, but it's the Holy Spirit of God himself who's directing David to basically say, These are the kind of people that I like to spend time with, God says. These are the things that I'm looking for in the lives of people that make me want to be with them, together with them, that that can be in my presence. Now, certainly verses two to five aren't a description of what it requires to experience salvation and to enter into God's presence and to be in heaven. However, what's being described here is the practical outworking of a righteous life of living in right relationship with God. And these should therefore be the fruit and the evidence of a life that's living in right relationship with God. That if we want to please God and serve God, and ultimately these should be the things that characterize to a greater and greater degree those of us who will ultimately be in the literal presence of God when we depart from this earth. We experience his presence to a degree now as his people on this earth. But one day, we're literally going to be in the heavenly tabernacle. We're going to be in the new Jerusalem. We're going to be in the presence of God himself. And these are the things that should characterize the lives of those of us who long for that ultimately. So he's describing things that matter to God. So again, we should take note. Hey, this is what matters to God. These are the kind of people God likes to spend time with. First of all, he mentions verse 2. Who may abide with you, God? Who may be in your presence? And who do you want to spend time with? He says, verse 2, he who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. So notice he describes here that God is interested in our walk. God's interested in our works. And then he mentions as well, thirdly, that God is interested in our words, the way that we speak. Again, God pays attention to all those things. God cares about our conduct and our behavior. God cares about our attitude and our mindset. God cares about the way that we speak. And all those things really work in conjunction with one another anyway. He says in verse 2 that God likes to walk together with those who walk uprightly. Those who walk uprightly, that is, they're, they're not walking in a bent or a crooked way, the idea. Somebody who's just, you know, we, we say a lot of times, hey, I like that guy, he's a straight shooter, right? I mean, that's kind of the idea, you know, to walk upright means you walk in a way where you're living above reproach, 
You're not living in a crooked way. There's an uprightness to the way that you live, uh, and, and you're not doing things in a secretive way. You're a person of integrity and righteousness. You have an upright uh, outlook and upright uh, attitude in the way that you live your life. You have morals and care about what's decent and pleasing to God. And God says, these are the kind of people that I like to walk with. People who are living in an upright way, those who walk in an upright manner. And again, what does Amos say? How can two walk together unless they be agreed? And oftentimes we think about that on a human level, and there's a, a degree of truth to that, that unless people are both going in the same direction, that you can't walk together in partnership. You've got to kind of have a degree of agreement. Well, look, nowhere is that more important than in what the Bible talks about, which is that we walk with God. And God walks in righteousness. God walks in an upright way because of who he is and his nature. And therefore, God walks in agreement with those who live in the way that God does, which is in a righteous or an upright way. That's who can live in fellowship with harmony with God. He says as well, those who work righteousness, that is their works, uh, produce that which is righteous, pleasing to God. It's right in the sight of God, and it's right in its impact or its uh, you know, treatment of fellow men. Righteousness is both vertical as well as horizontal. And also, God cares about the way that we speak. He says, God likes to be with those who speak the truth in their heart. Again, the idea there is just honesty from the innermost being. Again, speaking the truth in the heart is that you, you're, you're not living a lie. You're not lying to yourself about your own condition. Remember, David ultimately is going to say in Psalm uh, 51, where he describes his experience uh, of sin with Bathsheba and then murdering Uriah, her husband. And as David's kind of coming to this place of repentance and talking about God, you know, create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me. And, and David says there, God, you desire truth in the inward parts. In other words, remember, David says, God, sacrifice an offering you don't desire or else I would bring it. Again, remember, there was no sacrifice or offering to atone for adultery, for murder. These were capital crimes. David understood that. So David realized, look, there is no sacrifice that I can actually even bring to atone for my sin and for my wrongdoing. But he says, what I've come to realize, God, the thing that you really want, the greatest sacrifice I can bring to you is having a truly broken heart and a genuinely contrite spirit over the thing that I've done wrong because, God, you desire truth in the inward parts. In other words, God, you desire for me to have a true perspective on my wrongdoing whereby I make no excuses or justifications in any way for it, and I'm not lying to myself anymore about it. I'm just fully owning and acknowledging that what I did against thee and thee only, God, I've sinned and done this evil in your sight. No excuses. That's the truth, God. I own it. I embrace it. And I don't want to play the hypocrite about it anymore. And God, I'm thankful that all you require of me is that my heart be broken over my sin. And that that is a thing that matters most to you, that you might extend forgiveness to me. And so here David realizes this reality that God cares about truth in the inward parts. And that's ultimately, remember, where all our speech comes from, because Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so as he says here, he desires those who speak truth in his heart. So again, speaking truth in your heart, to me, conveys the idea is that you're communing in your own heart. You're communing with yourself in your own heart. You're not living a lie and telling yourself a lie. And that's probably one of the most 
dangerous things that we can do as people at times is, is this in a sense we're, we're speaking lies to ourselves anyway. We're just kind of lying to ourselves rather than being honest with ourselves in regards to our true condition before God. God. God wants that honesty and that sincerity within the innermost part of us. And he also mentions our words outwardly. He says, and also God likes to be together with notice those who do not backbite with their tongue. And again, the word backbite is just so picturesque and fitting. You know, the idea of taking a bite out of somebody's back. That's the idea is that they're not facing you. They don't see what you're doing. It's when they're turned away, they're not paying attention. Again, it's behind their back is how you wound them. And that's how you wound them verbally. And as people, quite honestly, we tend to be a lot more prone, I would say, to backbiting than confronting people to their faces. I mean, don't get me wrong. At times we can get frustrated and sometimes be pretty direct and brazen and say hurtful things too. But we're very, very skilled at backbiting. We tend to be very, very comfortable with when people aren't in front of us and they aren't in front of our face, talking about them, right? We say behind their backs, gossip, slander. And let's just be very candid. Uh, Social media and all these things that exist today, they have just become a tremendous platform for this kind of stuff, as well as just you know, the, the access of cell phones and all this. I mean, people looking people eye to eye and having face-to-face conversation and communication anymore or having the courage to have, you know, straightforward, honest conversations. Unfortunately, that's just kind of diminishing more and more and we're getting way more comfortable hiding behind an electric device and saying something nasty and send it to somebody or worse, just putting something on a public platform that's just, you know, slanderous and is just destructive in its speech. And again, God doesn't like these things. You know, the Bible says that in the power of the tongue, there's both death and life. Uh, And it speaks of how even our words, you know, in our tongue, Proverbs talked about how they can be like the piercings of a sword. And God doesn't like to see us do that. It's not something that's pleasing to the Lord. The Bible encourages us to refrain from this. And he says, he who does not do this, the idea is that we use self-control in our words. And that's, boy, isn't that what James had to talk about for like a whole chapter (laughs) about learning how to muzzle our tongues and how to control our mouths and our tongues like a little spark that can cause a whole forest fire and that, you know, no man can tame the tongue. It's tough to get a hold of our language. It's tough to get a hold of our mouths. And, and he says, look, this is the thing that God matters. It matters to him, and it, it pleases him when we don't backbite with our tongue, when we learn to say, you know, I'm not going to do that, Lord. I'm not going to speak hurtfully or harmfully behind somebody's back, you know, trash their character or just you know, passing on gossip or complaining about people. And, you know, and, and just, you know, and, and we do this in the body of Christ, quite honestly, all the time. Uh, you know, as God's people, we try and pass it off as like concern for people and prayer requests, but we tear people down among Christian conversation way more probably than we really should or that we're sensitive to in the Holy Spirit. Uh, and a lot of times we just kind of want to dismiss it for something that's not that big of a deal. And it's something that does matter to God. And so therefore God says, I, I like to be with those who are not backbiting with the tongue, nor doing evil to our neighbor. And that's certainly one of the best ways to do evil to our neighbor. Nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. That is, again, just kind of becoming a turncoat, not being loyal to a friend, but instead, again, kind of turning upon a friend instead. God appreciates loyalty. Verse four, 
Another thing God says that he looks to and enjoys being together with is the person in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but that person instead honors those who fear the Lord. The Bible tells us that we should love the things that God loves and we should hate the things that God hates. That what God considers righteous, we could consider righteous, and then what God considers vile and wicked and sinful and wrong, we should have the same perspective that God does towards those things. So again, God doesn't like vile, evil. The idea is vile implies disgusting, filthy, wicked, immoral, disgusting, vile behavior. So uh, that's something that God despises. It displeases him greatly. So he, he says, look, if these are the things that disgust me, well, I want them to disgust you too. And and so here he says, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. The idea is that it would vex your spirit, that when you see somebody who is a vile, perverse person spreading that kind of stuff, that no matter who they are, you wouldn't esteem such a person. It doesn't matter how important they are or who they are, that if they're spreading vile perversity, that you would despise such a thing and you'd want their soul to change and you'd be in no way pleased or honored by such a person, but instead that the people that you would honor is those who fear the Lord. And that that's who is someone that you view in a sense as your hero, that you honor and, and, and are well pleased by seeing people who fear the Lord and live in reverence of God. Verse four, the last half of it, he mentions another thing there, which I think is very fitting. Again, something else that greatly matters to God is he who swears to his own hurt and does not change. I think other translations render that he who keeps his oath, even though it hurts. And here the idea is just being someone of our word, someone with integrity that we keep our promises. He who swears to his own hurt, who keeps his oath, honors his promise, notice, and and does not change. That is, we don't waver when we make a commitment or we give a promise that we follow through. And interesting, notice he says, sometimes we make a promise or we make an oath or a commitment and we realize "Mm, that's actually going to be hard to follow through with that. And here he says, he who keeps his oath and does not change to his own hurt. That is, sometimes to follow through with a promise or to keep a commitment, it's actually difficult to still do it. There's some degree of sacrifice on our part where it may even harm or hurt us in some way. But we say, you know what? I gave my word. I I gave my oath there. I gave a promise. And so, again, I'm going to honor my oath and my commitment, even though it may be difficult, painful, or in some way a sacrifice for me to follow through. I look at verse four there and I think, you know, that should be incorporated in every marriage ceremony. I mean, think about that. That's what we should have people saying in marriage ceremony. In fact, I might just put that in my next marriage ceremony. For better, for worse, and I promise to keep my own oath, even if it hurts. Even if it hurts, I'm going to keep my oath. I'm going to keep my promise and commitment in marriage, even if it's hard and it hurts, as it does sometimes, because marriage has its challenges. You know, again, we have this idea of, well, it's too hard to keep that commitment. Or I know I made that promise, but it's hard or they're hurting me now or they're not treating me good now. And so people want to forsake their marital oath and give up right on their marital promise. And the Bible says, no, even when it's hard to keep our promises, at times we should be those who, like God, remain faithful and try and have integrity 
to keep our word and promise. He mentions verse five, he who does not put out his money at usury. So God cares about how we utilize our money. And notice to put out money at usury speaks of using money in a manipulative way, whereby you lend money for either exorbitant interest rates or you lend money that is usury is to then be able to manipulate and take advantage of people to gain power over them. So you use your money in a way to harmfully control other people. That's the idea of usury. Nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. So again, just taking bribes, being greedy for money and mistreating people through bribery because you're so greedy for money to gain financial advantage, you would take a bribe and hurt somebody or do something unrighteous or do something wrong. So again, God cares even about how we manage our money. And notice he concludes the psalm by saying, he who does these things shall never be moved. So it's the blessing of experiencing God's presence, knowing that God wants to spend time with such people, that God wants to draw close and walk together in closeness with those who live in this way, as well as he says, those who do these things also shall experience a great degree of stability in their lives. He who does these things shall never be moved. And it speaks there of of being stable, not being moved off course, having a steadiness or a stability to your life. Again, do do you want a more stable life? Do you not want to be moved off course, but to stay on track? Well, verses two to five explain one of the ways to do that. God says, do you want to live stable? Do you not want to be moved off course? Do these things. Verses two, three, four, and five. Let those things characterize the way that you live and it will bring a stability to your life. And you notice as well, he says there in verse five, he doesn't say he who agrees with these things, he who talks about these things, right? What does he say? He who does these things. The idea is putting them into practice, putting them into practice. That is in some ways sometimes a huge gap that takes place in our Christian experience is we hear a truth or we read a truth and we think because we read the truth or we understand the truth or we heard the truth or we agree with the truth that we're actually living it. And those are two different things, right? I can read the truth, hear the truth, understand the truth and assent to it and nod. I can even say amen out loud in a church service. But just because I'm hearing the truth or agree with the truth doesn't mean I'm living the truth. That's something that God's word calls us to, to not just be what hearers of the word, but doers also, lest we deceive ourselves, like looking in a mirror and walking away and forgetting what we saw in the mirror. And we missed the whole point. And this is important. Jesus even talked about that in the Sermon on the Mount, where the end of this beautiful teaching, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the longest teaching we have of Jesus about kingdom principles, And Jesus, at the end of it, tells that kind of story, the analogy where he says that the wise man, he says, built his house on the rock and the rains descended and the floods came. But that house stood because it was built upon the rock. And and Jesus said, and the foolish man, he built his house on the sand. And the same thing, the rains came and the floods came upon the house and it all fell apart. And great was its fall because it was built on the sand. Again, one house fell apart, the other house stood and remained stable. And Jesus said, the storms come against both. So any life is going to experience storms. And in the midst of that passage, Jesus said this. He said, 
He who hears these sayings of mine and does them, he's like the wise man who builds his house on the rock. And when the storm comes, his house doesn't fall apart. But he says, he who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them is like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. So after Jesus gives this extensive teaching, all these kingdom principles that are so countercultural of how to live kingdom like, right? Where he, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit and, you know, blessed are the persecuted. And he talks about, you know, that, that sin is more than just an issue of our actions, but our attitudes and about judgment and all the three chapters. And then he says, he who hears these things and puts them into practice, solid foundation for life. He who heard the same sermon I just preached to all this multitude and doesn't do these things. It was just a audible experience and the life is built on a completely different foundation. So again, such an important thing. The challenge here of the Holy Spirit is, hey, do we want to experience more of God's presence? Do we want to know God's pleased and we walk in closeness and fellowship with God and experience God to a greater degree? Well, then he says, he who does these things shall never be moved, will, be, will become stable in our spiritual life and will also experience, verse 1 says, the presence of God in a very wonderful way. Psalm 16, we read a mitkam of David, and that term in the Hebrew, we believe, means golden. So the idea is a golden psalm of David here. So again, whether this is like, you know, the Holy Spirit, this is gold status, or, uh, you know, David really mined some real gold in this one, or if you dig into the psalm, there's some really wonderful golden nuggets to mine out of it. Uh, we don't know. That's just the title that it's given, a, a golden uh, psalm of David. David says, Psalm 16 here, preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. So David's dealing with difficulty. Notice he doesn't pray here, deliver me, God. Apparently, David couldn't be delivered out of the difficulty. He, he couldn't avoid the trial. And that's usually what I prefer and what you prefer, right? It's like, Lord, can I just take the correspondence course on that one? I saw other people do that same trial. I saw other people go through that same personal hardship in their life, whether it was sickness or suffering or setback or whatever. And it's like, oh, yeah, I, can I just kind of watch that from a distance? And sometimes the Lord says, no, we, we, we need to journey through that trial personally. I'm going to take you through this. And, and in the midst of that, it's not always being delivered out of the trial or being spared from the trial but David prays here, Lord, preserve me, for in you I put my trust. Lord, if I've got to go through the fire, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, then would you just preserve me while I'm in the fire? Keep it from destroying me, God. Preserve me, protect me. The idea is sustain me, Lord. Preserve me as I go through this. Lord, I'm trusting in you that you're going to preserve me through this. I'm trusting in you that you will preserve us as we journey through this because we're trusting in your hand to be able to sustain and keep us in the midst of it. He says, verse two, oh, my soul, you have said to the Lord, notice David often communed with himself. He kind of self-talk. So you can do that apparently spiritually as a Christian. You can talk to yourself. I don't know about answering yourself. That might start to go too far, but you can, you can encourage yourself. 
It says, David encouraged himself in the Lord, First Samuel tells us. So he says, oh, my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord, my Adonai. Again, there's that term there in the Hebrew. The idea is my ruler, my master. Oh, Yahweh, you are my master, my ruler. He says, my goodness is nothing apart from you. Boy, what a great evaluation David makes there. You know, he says, God, there's nothing good in my life apart from you. Lord, there is nothing good in me apart from you and your presence in my life, your involvement in my life as my Adonai, as my ruler. That is the only thing that brings anything good into my life, God. When you were not my Adonai, when you were not my ruler, my life was not good. I know that was my story. I'm going to assume it was yours as well. But when the Lord became the ruler over your life and took rulership and mastery over your life, then good things began to come into your life. The, you know, the blessings of God and the goodness of God and even just the, the, the in a sense, the, the quality of something good and decent in your life. You know, we receive the righteousness of Christ and the nature of Christ. I mean, these things of value that are actually good. But we realize, Lord, all of that... that there's nothing of that apart from you and your presence in my life. There's nothing good in me. Isn't that what Paul said in the New Testament? Paul says in Romans chapter 7, I know that in me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Paul understood that. There's nothing good in me personally. And it's kind of a great thing when you can come to that place in your own humanity to have the humility to recognize, yeah, I. No, no, I really bring absolutely nothing good to the table. All I bring, Lord, is a bunch of bad stuff. I bring a bunch of problems. That's, that's what I do. I, yeah, I bring a lot of bad stuff. But, Lord, with you in my life, some good things start to happen. And, and some goodness begins to develop within me. But he says, my goodness, Lord, it's, it's nothing apart from you. Again, that's why we need the Lord so much. That's why Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We need the Lord. He's the one that brings anything good in our life or from our life. David says, verse three, Lord, not only is it being with you, but he says, I even enjoy being with your people. He says, verse three, as for the saints, that is, those who are set apart for God, the sanctified ones who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. See, when you start to enjoy God and walking with the Lord and having a relationship with the Lord, then you start to like God's family. You start to like God's people. He says, Lord, your people are the excellent ones now in whom is all my delight. The idea of the word delight there is enjoyment. He's saying, Lord, I find enjoyment in being together with the saints, being with your people. That's where I find my enjoyment. That's where I find my pleasure. And I don't know about you, but I know that that was a definite transitional thing that happened in my life. Before I became a, a Christian, before I was saved, I really, I didn't want to hang out with Christians. They made me uncomfortable. They made me feel convicted. Uh, I didn't have an interest, but after I got saved, one of the ways I knew, like the, the first John says, one of the ways I knew that I had passed from spiritual death to spiritual life was all of a sudden now I had a love for the brethren, for the body of Christ. All of a sudden now I liked Christians. I, I found enjoyment being with fellow believers. There was something about being with God's family that was actually delightful and enjoyable. You know, I, I, I am gravely concerned when I meet people who are believers and, and claim to be believers, but 
they don't like Christians. And there's kind of that, well, yeah, I mean, I like Jesus and Jesus is my savior, but I just, I don't like the church. I just, I don't want nothing to do with the church. I don't really care for Christians and I don't really need other Christians. It's just me and Jesus and my Bible. Well, I don't know. know, That seems to run a little contradictory to what the word of God teaches. The concept that we're the body of Christ and we're members of one another and we should actually enjoy being with one another. The more we're walking in closeness with the Lord, the more we do find enjoyment being together with the saints. David himself, I love to be with God's people, he's saying here. He says, verse 4, their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. So he's talking here about those who live in idolatry. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer. And sadly, these were some of the pagan practices where they would drink blood, whether it was a part of the uh, ritual or whether the drinking of blood was a part of their way of showing their, the, the, uh, you know, the, the, the severity and seriousness of their commitment at times. They would actually do these kind of things because they knew that blood represented life and death. Nor will I take their name upon my lips. But here, verse 4, David saying, God, here's something I've learned by observation. Those who serve other things than you, those who are living in idolatry, no matter how intense they are, or what their pursuit is or what they're chasing after and worshiping, whatever their God is in their life, right? And, and we know everybody has a God. Everybody does. Idolatry is just the worship of anything other than God as first and foremost importance in our life as our creator. So everybody's inclined to a degree of idolatry. And David says, here's what I've learned. People who are hastening after chasing this as their God and that as their God and, and you know, pursuing idolatry in this way or that way. He says, here's what I've learned. Their life is filled with a lot of sorrow and misery and regret. And boy, isn't it true? We look at people, they can have all the money that a person could imagine. They could have power and position and fame and all these you know, worldly things that we think bring happiness and, and yet we can realize that because they don't know the Lord or they're not worshiping God, their life is filled with multiplied sorrow and misery and regret because there's no fulfillment in those things. They're empty. All those other things cause a person not only to be dissatisfied, but it actually ends up bringing sorrows because you make poor choices. You live in sinful ways, which brings pain and consequences from sin. And sorrows are just multiplied when you don't serve for, live for God. Verse 5, he says, But, O Lord, in contrast, you are the portion of my inheritance in my cup. You maintain my lot, and the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance so david says lord in contrast to them you are the portion again your portion speaks of you know that which sustained you or satisfied you you know here's your portion for your meal he says lord you are my portion for my life you're enough for me he says god you're my portion you're what meets the need in my life you are my portion and my inheritance lord you are the thing that i am waiting for You're the thing that I'm longing for one day to inherit, to receive freely. You don't pay for an inheritance, right? You receive it freely as a gift. And he's saying, Lord, not only are you my portion now, but you are the thing that one day I'm looking forward to inherit 
to be able to be in your presence and enjoy the inheritance of your kingdom as David would one day enter into God's presence. And he says, and God, you are maintaining my lot. God, you've you've made the lines, the boundary lines for me of my possessions. He says, in pleasant places, yes, he says, I've got a good inheritance. David just realized, God, it's a really good deal to be one of your children. Lord, I've got a really good future ahead of me. And David just understood this spiritually, that the reality was is no matter what was happening in his life circumstantially, David could step back from that and he could say, but you know what? My future's good. My future's good. I do know that. And I think David at times could smile and worship because he could step back and say, you know what, Lord? I may not have this. I may not have that. I may not have this person in my life anymore. And that may be hard. And I may, but Lord, you're my portion. You satisfy me every day. Your presence is enough for me. It sustains me. And Lord, you're my inheritance ultimately, Lord. And you have been maintaining me and the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. And Lord, I've got a good inheritance ahead of me. I've got a good future ahead of me. And you know what? Tonight, if nothing else seems good in your life, if you know Jesus Christ, your future is. Your future's not just good, it's great. And the boundary lines of your eternal destiny, the the inheritance you're going to receive are absolutely wonderful. Yes, you could say as well with David, I have a good inheritance. And verse seven, what does that make a person do? Worship, right? Because what's David do next? Verse seven, he says, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. So here he speaks of how God's guidance is provided to him. He says, Lord, I bless you because so often I've seen you've given me counsel. You've given me counsel. You know, the Bible calls the Lord the wonderful counselor. The scriptures speak to us in many different ways. You know, even as we were singing this evening, this verse came to my mind thinking about tonight's study. Uh, It's from Isaiah 28, 29. It says, this also comes from the Lord of hosts who was wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. Always love that verse. The Lord who was wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter two, from the Lord comes wisdom and from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. What a wonderful blessing it is to have the spirit of God at work in your life, the spirit of truth, to have the word of God at your disposal and to be able to read through the scriptures, the spirit-inspired God-breathed scriptures, and to so often, whether it's through the word of God, whether it's through the spirit of God, whether it's through the people of God and the spirit of God working through the voices of the people of God around us who are in our life, to continually receive counsel from the Lord. And how the Lord gives us counsel. I don't know what to do in this situation. Lord, I'm not really. And and the Lord speaks. And he gives us counsel. And even in the difficult times. Because David says, my my heart instructs me even in the night seasons. The night seasons, the idea of night is the times when it's dark. Right? Where you don't know which way to go. It's dark. I don't see what I'm supposed to do. I don't see where I'm supposed to go. The, The night seasons. The dark seasons. That even those times, the Lord can give us counsel what to do in the midst of those things. And again, how is it that our heart instructs us? Because what does the Bible say? That God is able, for those who know him and walk in closeness with him, the Bible says that God is able to write his will 
on the fleshly tablet of our heart. And God writes his will onto the fleshly and he puts impressions upon our hearts and he, he impresses things upon us to tell us what he's wanting us to do, giving us counsel and instructing us from within our heart. Even in the darkest hours, we hear that word from the Lord to give us counsel. And David said, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Again, the idea is I will be stable. I will be secure. Lord, I'm in a place where I will not be moved off track. And he says, no matter what I'm going through, I have set the Lord before me. The idea is I've set the Lord in front of me. I'm letting the Lord lead me. That's the idea is, is Lord, I need your counsel. You give me counsel. So therefore, I don't want to get things mixed up. I'm going to wait for your counsel. And Lord, I'm going to keep you before me, not me before you. That's where we make a mistake, right? We say God's our counselor but then sometimes we get ahead of the Lord or we have an idea and we want to give counsel to the Lord about our idea and then say, God, why don't you? And God said, no, 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 we got things backwards here. How about you let me stay in front of you and you just follow me. You just follow my lead. Just find out where I'm going, see what I'm doing, keep me before you and you just follow me. You know, God always has times when he wants to lead and direct, but we want to keep the Lord before us, that he's first in priority, that he's the one who's leading our lives and we're just receiving direction and following him. And David says, when this happens, he says, stability comes to my life. When I set the Lord before me as a choice, David continued to set the Lord before him. And he says, because he's at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Now, interesting analogy David uses, especially as a warrior, because he's at my right hand. Typically, most people, soldiers anyway, would, would bear their shield with their left hand predominantly those who are right hand would bear their shield with their left hand and they would use the right hand for the sword, which meant that technically your right hand side was more vulnerable. It was more exposed. Your shield was up over here. So you were a lot more guarded and protected on your left hand than you were on your right hand. So in a battle, you really wanted somebody who knew what they were doing at your right hand <laughs> because they were on your vulnerable side, your blind spot, we might say, right? Because you'd had nothing covering you there. That was where you were holding your weapon. And so David here sees the Lord as this way as his shield, as his protector. He says, Lord, I put you at my right hand. Lord, you're watching my blind spot so that I don't get blindsided like a quarterback, right? Lord, you're on my blind spot and you're protecting me and shielding me, Lord, because I don't always see all the things that could come against me. But because he is at my right hand, he says, I shall not be moved. The enemy won't take me down because the Lord is my shield at my right hand. Therefore, again, David says in worship, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices and my flesh also will rest in hope. Now, David here begins to speak in a way we'll see that's somewhat prophetic. My flesh, he says, will rest in hope. That is, there's a hopeful expectation that when David rests in his flesh, that is, rests in death at the end of his life, that there will be a hopeful expectation even in his death. He says, verse 10, look, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, the Hebrew there is the place of the dead or the grave, nor will you allow your holy one, that is his physical body, to see corruption. So in some vague way, and again, in the Old Testament, the idea of the afterlife and the resurrection was somewhat vague to Old Testament saints. We see that. 
It was rather a vague understanding. Jesus has brought clarity and life and immortality to light through the gospel. And we understand much more clearly the afterlife and resurrection and truths about physical bodily resurrection and so forth that's come to clarity to us through the gospel and the New Testament teachings. But there was an awareness of an afterlife and a resurrection in a general sense to the Old Testament saints. And David here says, Lord, I believe that when I die, I don't know how you're going to do it. But because my faith is in you and I believe in an afterlife, he says, I believe you are not going to let my soul be stuck in the grave. But I believe, Lord, that you will liberate my soul and that more than that, you will not allow the body of your Holy One to see corruption The idea is because, God, you are going to resurrect and raise up and restore my body and my soul, and I'm going to be in your presence literally. And so David understood this concept of a resurrection. Now, clearly, he already know the Holy Spirit was not just David saying these things, but ultimately this was a prophetic reference to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his resurrection because this very set of verses here, Peter quotes in Acts chapter 2, And then Paul himself, you can read in Acts chapter 13, quotes these same verses and uses them to preach about the resurrection of Christ. That when David was saying these things, that he actually was speaking about the very resurrection of Jesus in a prophetic way. Let me just briefly read you. David or Paul in Acts chapter 13 says, God has fulfilled this for us in that he raised up Jesus as it is written. And then he quotes a couple Psalms and then he refers to this Psalm. Therefore, he also says in another Psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption, decay in his body. For David, after he served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So ultimately, Peter and Paul both take this and they use this Old Testament statement of David to say that was speaking about the resurrection of the Messiah, that Jesus would not be left in the grave, but that his body, prior to seeing corruption, would rise again. And the Holy One, literally the Christ, would not see corruption, but come back to life in his resurrection. Verse 11, David concludes by saying, and Lord, you will show me the path of life. What a great expectation to have lord you're going to show me the path you know maybe tonight you're saying i mean i just i don't know what the path is for my life well look like david you can say lord you're going to show me you're going to show me the path of life maybe you don't know what path to take well well, god doesn't show partiality david believed god was going to show him the path of life perhaps tonight you should believe the lord will show you the path of life And then he concludes, and in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Boy, are those truths wonderful or not? God, in your presence is fullness of joy, abundant joy, the ability to be joyful rather than miserable, despite what your human circumstances are. God, in your presence there's some degree of experiencing a full degree of joy. And at your right hand, Lord, he says, are pleasures forevermore. Again, what's at the right hand of God? 
Jesus, right? That's the right hand of the Father. The right hand of the Father is Jesus Christ sitting there, and he says, at your right hand, Lord, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You know, look, no matter what's going on on this earth now in your life or what you're dealing with or you may have to deal with, the wonderful thing is this. If David had this confidence, how much more do you and I, having Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior who has died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead, and ascended to the right hand of the Father where he is there waiting for us and will one day come back for us, whether in our death when we breathe our last breath or when he raptures and removes us from this earth. And here's the wonderful thing, that in his presence, you're going to ultimately experience fullness, fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more struggles, sickness, difficulty, no more tears, no more sorrow or death, but just pleasures forevermore. And real pleasure, right? Not earthly pleasure. That's temporary. Real, genuine, fulfilling pleasure and joy. And what a wonderful thing because to a degree, you know what? We start to get a little foretaste of it now as we do these very things that we do, which is enter into the Lord's presence in worship and spend time. Jesus, when two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there in the midst. And right, isn't it so true as we just spend time in the Lord's presence you know, when we prayed Sunday night, you just you sense the presence of the Lord, and there's just something you walk away from that, or you sit there in the Lord's presence, and you're just thinking, man, just, just the, the burden just kind of goes off. And you just have a sense of his presence and the joy it can bring to your heart and the pleasure of just being in God's presence. Such a wonderful, wonderful thing. Well, let's enjoy a little bit of that tonight. Let's stand together and worship a little bit before we depart and